Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 9th, 2022. This is episode 3049 of the Survival Podcast. It's Wednesday. That means it is interview day. This interview actually was conducted as a live stream. So if you missed that and you're getting the audio, you'll get... Uh, a little bit of extra stuff on the beginning and the end of it, the intro and the outro, as we call it, in the podcast business. Today we are going to be interviewing Drew Holman from Back to Mother is the name of the company. The website is backtomother.earth. I like websites like that. I don't mean websites. I like URLs like that. Like our farm website is ninemile.farm. I think it's, it's, it's kind of a good, clever marketing thing to uh, put – Together domains like that in in a world where you know almost anything that's uh, relatively short and snappy with a dot com on it's either doing something or domain squatted on it and some person wants a bunch of money for it that it probably ain't worth. Um, but all of these uh, alternative domains, I know it's not really what we're talking about today, but actually we are because we're going to talk about what led Drew to actually go down this path as an entrepreneur and build a company, again, called Back to Mother. They specialize in living and fermented foods. They do a little bit with uh, uh, ceramics business as well. They actually operate under a, a business organization uh, that is an employee-owned co-op. And I'm interested in this because I have – that sounds cool, and I also have some concerns. As someone who has always found – that giving somebody equity in a business prior to it being earned is bad. Um, I, I'm wondering what kind of safeguards there are to prevent, you know, basically a great big dumbbell weight hanging off of your neck while you're trying to build a business. Uh, I guess if everybody's in it for the same thing, then it's not a problem. But I've just had issues giving people equity in businesses. And uh, if I ever do it again, it will have to be earned under a uh, what you call a vetting period. But I wonder if there's something here. That, that's interesting. I also love talking about living foods. We're going to be talking about you know more uh, plant-based foods today. And I know some of you guys are like, but Jack, you're keto, you know, you, yeah, keto carnivore. Yeah, 99% of the time, honest to God anymore. But that doesn't mean everybody is. And one thing I hope I never do is become elitist to my lifestyle when it comes to teaching this audience. If you want to eat uh, carbohydrate-based foods and you figured out a way to do that in your life that works for you, I'm not going to stand in your way. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. Uh, and if you're going to be eating vegetables, I really think that fermentation is a huge, huge thing for health and living systems. Even though I'm mostly keto and lean toward carnivore, I'm still big on little bits of fermented food. I like to make fermented escabeche, which is just basically carrots and onions and jalapeno and sweet pepper with a lacto-fermentation. And, and the amount of that I would include with a meal as a little aside, uh, I think there's a huge kick to the health, and I think it has almost no impact on carbohydrates. And when we ferment foods with carbohydrates, we actually knock the carbs down in them as well. So I think this will be a fun, engaging interview. I do have a few questions for Drew, and as I'm cutting this intro, I have not yet conducted the interview, so I don't know how they're going to get answered. I have some some things I don't necessarily agree with that I see in his outline, like uh, the whole acid-alkaline diet thing. Uh, I, I'm going to be interested in where he's coming from with that, because I know for a fact if you change the pH of somebody's blood, they're dead. 
So I've always been a bit skeptical about that. But I've also heard some legitimate ways in which that philosophy makes sense. And maybe the conclusion from it doesn't make sense, but the uh, the enhancement of health tends to work for whatever reason. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about this business structure that he has, and we'll talk about more things. Before we do that, let's hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today is JM Bullion. I am a crypto bull, and I'm mainly a Bitcoin bull. I'm a Bitcoin maximalist light or a shitcoin minimalist when it comes to crypto, uh, depending on how you want to take that. And I just have to say that sometimes... It really troubles me when I talk about Bitcoin. People are like, gold, gold, silver, silver. And I'm like, what part of either or or both do you have a hard time comprehending? I find especially silver for a lot of people to be one of the best places to create highly divisible, highly anonymous, hard wealth that you can hold in your hands. Um, the thing about, and I like gold too, but the thing about gold is if you have a one ounce gold coin, that's an awful lot of money and it is hard to part it out. But if you have the same value in silver, it's much easier to like say, hey, I'm going to use a little bit of this for barter. I'm going to sell a little bit of it in hard times. Or I'm going to break it up amongst my children. I'm going to hand it to them. You know, when I'm getting in my final years of life before I even kick off, I'm going to see this wealth transfer and no one needs to know about it. And if I pay for something someone does for me as a handyman or something my neighbor does for me or I hand it down to my kids or whatever I do with it, it's between me, them, and the fence post. And that is part of why, I, it's not the only reason, it's part of why I love precious metals. Why jam bullion? Because they sponsor the Survival Podcast. Yeah, yeah, if you like the show, sure, that's one good reason. But how about you're going to pay the same or less than places like Lear Capital and Monix and stuff like that. I have a direct line to the, the, the president of the company at any time that anything might go wrong. You're going to get free shipping, and if you're an MSB member, you're going to get a discount. I don't know what else to say. Check them out today, jambullion.com. Next up today, ridgewallet.com. Ridgewallet came to me when one of, the, one of the reps reached out and said, hey, we would like to sponsor TSP. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not sure. I've never used a wallet like this. They sent me some. And I, I picked the one I like for my own personal use, gave the other one away, started carrying it. It was four years ago. I still carry it every day, and I love it. My, my old billfold, I say this all the time, but it's because it's true, is sitting on a shelf that I keep some fish equipment on. It's been there since I got this daggone wallet. I need to get rid of it. I think it's a nostalgia holding on to the damn thing or something. It ain't even a nostalgic wallet. I, I had that one about four years, and you know, I wear them out. And That's the thing about the Ridge wallet. It just doesn't wear out, and it protects you from identity theft, and it's a minimalist way to carry the stuff that you really need to carry, uh, and it looks cool. I get comments all the time when I pay with it. Oh, that's the Ridge wallet. I, I didn't know that they were that big of a brand when we took them on. And they have a lot of other cool stuff, cases for your phones, some really cool urban carry gear and stuff like that. Check them out at RidgeWallet.com. And yes, indeed, they do a discount for MSB, Members Support Brigade, which is on sale right now. Discount code MEXICO22 through the end of the month. You can get it for $35 a year. That does lock in and apply to renewing, and I do take cryptocurrency as well. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members there. But you get a bunch of discounts. If you use a few of them, It'll pay for it. If you use CBD product, let me tell you something right here. If you use CBD product or if you're using like uh, some of the other legalized cannabinoids, just that alone, if you're doing that and you're not an MSB member, you hate money. You're throwing money away. 
I guarantee you, with what that stuff costs and the discounts that I've negotiated with, with three different vendors for those types of products alone, the first time you order, you will get your money back, especially at 35 bucks a year. Check it out, thesurvivalpodcast.com, and click on Members to learn more. Oh, with that, let us divulge from the intro and head into the main topic of today's show with our special guest, Drew Holman of Back to Mother dot earth and we are live hey folks uh i have a special guest with us today drew holman of back to mother dot earth and i was saying in the intro drew how much i like kind of creative domains like that and that's not the main thing we're here to talk about but uh, like our website for our farm is not about farm and uh, so i dig that when i see those kind of creative domains um Coming out of the gate, can you just tell me before we dig into fermentation and living foods in your business, how did you even get pulled into this world? Kind of what's your background? You had a pretty long uh, story in your notes and your submission about what led you into this path. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm definitely, um, I just got drawn into it just from being really curious. I, uh, I had a couple of run-ins with some health issues that I ended up uh, nursing myself back to health through living foods. Um, so after having an experience like that, I just saw the value of it and got really passionate about uh, pr creating a situation where I can give that to the public and provide that for others. I was working at a summer camp in Pennsylvania and had two tick-borne diseases. Uh, so this is when I really got into it. I was already fermenting at that point. Uh, thankfully, I was actually brewing kombucha in the back of a pottery studio at the summer camp. I had a little hot plate and a little situation to brew. And, um, yeah, so I ended up getting Bapsiosis and Lyme's disease and working 18 hours a day and not like having really awful symptoms. And, uh, when I finally got my blood work back, they were, the nurses were saying that I should be hospitalized immediately <laughs> and that wasn't an option for me. Uh, but I had already started, you know, eating raw bean sprouts. So I was sprouting beans, which have their own living culture on them. I was drinking the kombucha that I was brewing and that's pretty much all I was eating was just those two things. Um, and eating some raw fruit from the dining hall at the summer camp. But when I saw what that could do for me after some pretty serious life threatening diseases, um, yeah, I was pretty convinced that that's something I should be investing in. Okay. Can you, uh, tell us what, What, you know, kind of what those results were like. What, how, how did this work out for you moving to living foods? And what do you mean by living foods? Are we only talking about fermentation or things with, uh, living cultures on them? Or are we talking about all food that is, you know, like veg vegetables that are not cooked or what have you? Yeah. So technically every, if, if you have an apple that's not cooked, that's, that's alive. Um, so I'm talking about anything that's raw, it's not cooked. Um, Yeah, basically most things that are, are raw. And the biggest thing too is, um, if you can eat something that hasn't been washed, like all of our vegetables and our, our fruits and our grocery stores, you know, when they're, when they're growing out in nature, they're covered in the bacteria and the yeasts that help us. And, um, once you cover them in wax and wash them all pretty, they lose, you know, some of those beneficial things that help you digest them. Um, but yeah, I'm talking about fermentation. I'm talking about uh, raw foods in general. Okay, cool. Um, 
Yeah, and I think that's something that we have really damaged ourselves with, I think, and we've done it mentally as well as in actuality, in that people kind of freak out when I take them out in my garden and I reach down and grab a cherry tomato or I reach down and grab a Cuban L pepper or something. I just hand it to them and tell them to eat it. They look at it like like I rubbed it in the dirt before I gave it to them or something like that. And I think that, like, the reason we wash commercial food is because of what they spray it with. And even with organics, there is some practices you need to take into account. You shouldn't be spraying manure tea on food you're going to put in your mouth. But in general, we evolved as human beings walking around, looking for food, picking it up and sticking it in our mouth. We didn't. Our ancestors weren't going through a massive wash, dry and wax um you know, and I guess I just grew up with like, you know, so apple trees, we look at an apple on it, pull it off, look at it. Oh, there's a wormhole. Take a knife, cut that worm out of it and eat the freaking apple. And people just don't think that way anymore. Yeah, we've definitely become very germaphobic in our culture today. And, uh, yeah, you know, our, our ancestors, even a couple generations back, there was fermentation involved with mostly food preservation. Uh, so I feel like we've, we've stepped away from our traditions and, that's what I'm hoping to bring back and bring us back into some assemblages of, yeah, these old, old school traditions. So what makes our, what makes fermented foods so much better for our health than foods that are not fermented? Because we are going to move into kind of the, the fermentation uh, concept uh, at this point in the interview. Yeah, so, you know, raw foods are good for you, but think about the nutrition that's locked up in the cell walls of the structures of the actual uh, vegetables. And um, you, you give a culture, an active culture, the time to digest that and break it down for you, but in a way that's preserved and it's not going to grow mold on it. It's going to be, um, yeah, it just it helps you. It's like a pre-digestion, basically. It's doing what your stomach would otherwise have to do for itself, but it's already done. So it makes it makes the nutrition uh, way more bioavailable for our bodies to just absorb and and benefit from. And can you talk maybe a little bit about the history of fermentation? Um, I know from reading uh, Dr. Weston Price's book that it, he pretty much said that every single indigenous culture that he interacted with in his travels and his research had at least one fermented food as part of their staple diet. Yeah, I would definitely believe that, you know, cultures all over the world that, you know, it's, it was basically a form of food preservation. You know, well, how do you get through the winter? You know, every culture at some point, and not, I guess not every culture is dealing with wintertime, but, um, you know, the, the Asian cultures have had a long history with, uh, kimchi and sauerkraut. And, you know, a lot of that was for the wintertime or the times when the harvest wasn't around. They would bury these giant jars. And that's actually, I have a ceramics background, so I know, like, I, some of this I got into from ceramics. Um, but they would, they would bury these giant clay pots and, um, let these ferments go for long periods of time and then have access to that, uh, whenever they needed. Yeah, um, I remember one of my buddies who was married to uh, a Korean woman that he met while he was stationed there. This is back when I was in the Army, and he used to talk about there was a, a difference between summer and winter kimchi. And I think that's kind of what you're hitting at there, that they had 
fresh made kimchi. It was, you know, this, this, you know, made in the spring or whatever. And then you had winter kimchi, which was stuff that was put up when everything was in, you know, high supply and then left buried in the ground. Yeah. And even like root cellars, you know, back in the colonial days when we had basic food preservations, we didn't have refrigeration. You know, the root cellars themselves, uh, would actually have a probiotic kind of in the air. The air that we breathe right now is living with yeasts and bacteria. And so even those root cellars are a way of, you know, semi preserving food through these active cultures. So what exactly does back to uh, mother sell as a product line? Are you, is it just kombucha that you ship or do you do other things as well? So we first launched uh, with the kombucha line. Yeah, so we have a line of 10 flavors, and I have a little bottle here, a little example, so you can see. We we sell in 12-ounce bottles, cases of 15. But, yeah, we've, we hit the market first with our kombucha product. Right now we're in the works of launching uh, both the sauerkraut and kimchi line. We're hoping to for that to be hitting the shelves uh, sometime in the next two or three months. We're working on the labels and getting all the the boxes checked off for that. And your business is run as a co-op. And it's actually not just a co-op, because I'm familiar with co-ops. It's a worker-owned co-op. Can you talk about exactly what that is, how it works, and what led you into that type of business structure? Yeah, so when we first sat down as a group of folks, uh, we re- we wanted to dig into the alternatives. You know, we were we were tired of the old structure. All of us have worked for businesses where there's unhealthy power structures, and it's not always that way in traditional business. But a lot of times, you know, there's a mismanagement of power, or you're going to do what I say because I'm the one in charge, kind of thing. And we wanted to step away from that. We wanted to find a model where everybody kind of takes responsibility for all the tasks, and you know, each of us are the CEO, each of us are the janitor. For instance, uh, that's, that's an idea that we work behind. Um, yeah, so we just really wanted to do a horizontal power structure and, uh, yeah, move forward with that. Can, can you talk about overcoming maybe some of the issues with that? Because my fear with that is I love the idea that everybody's equal, but I found in business that there has to be a lot of times there has to be somebody leading or in charge or saying, Hey, we got to make this happen. And then if everybody's equal, did everybody tender equal consideration? Does everybody tender equal sweat equity? Like how, do, how do you manage that? I'm not saying it can't be done. It's just something that I would have concerns about with, you know, having a history of over 25 years in business. Well, there has absolutely been challenges um, with our startup operation. We started with four folks and now we're down to two and, um, even that's had its own challenges. Um, and so, yeah, we stick to, you know, I definitely agree. There needs to be somebody in a managerial position. There needs to be somebody who, you know, when we're, we're, we're in action and we're in production mode, somebody has to take the lead and be able to, you know, figure out the flow of the workday. And it's helpful when somebody can step into that position. But when we're sitting down in our meetings and we're deciding what flavors to make and we're deciding like, oh, we're going to invest in this, this new avenue, that's where we sit around in roundtable discussions and have really open dialogues. And, you know, ideally we would come to conclusions and decision-making through consent and we wouldn't even have to vote. We would, we would talk and get to the best idea. And, you know, my idea might meld with somebody else's idea to come to an even better um, option for what we could move forwards with. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely keeping a balance and being realistic with all those things. 
Are there some things? I mean, we're in a tough economic situation in the country right now. We we really are, and it, it's going. I'm not a fear and, and doom kind of guy. If you're familiar with what I do, I'm always walking people back from that. But I have seen a, a level of I'm going to call it economic suicide taken by this country in the last. And it's not just the current person in charge. It's the last three years. It's 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 a continuous financial shooting in the foot of uh, of ourselves. And in your notes, you mentioned that in, in rough times that there's a lot of resiliency from using this form of, uh, of a corporate structure. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. And so with, co- with co-ops, for instance, you know, we've got a lot of support because of just the way that co-ops are and like the, the community of co-ops, people are always willing to help each other out. Um, so for instance, we've gotten a lot of, uh, consulting from people who, you know, they, they didn't need to give us their time, but as a startup, you know, we, we had a lot of questions and a lot of gaps on the know-how and they helped us streamline our process and learn more about, uh, our decision-making and our nonviolent communication and all these different things. So there are a lot of support structures. There's also like loan companies. There's loan companies that will only loan to, uh, co-ops and in the situations where things go belly up, you know, they don't, they're, they have really, really, uh, soft ways of managing, uh, payments and leniencies. And if you're going through a tough time, um, I think in the industry as a whole, uh, yeah, you know, as a worker on cooperative, you know, you can, you know, if you have to, if, if times get tough, you know, you can all decide, okay, we're going to take a cut and pay right now so that we can hunker down and maintain this long term. where if you have a business with a bunch of employees that you have to pay, you know, you can, you can't really negotiate that. Um, there's all these things in, in the way and, um, it can cause extra hurdles. It kind of opens up the field a little bit more with co-ops. I'm actually not hearing you right now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, I have, uh, in the past, even though I've had some issues with giving people equity, one of the reasons we've, you know, set up LLCs and maybe at least taken the core people that we feel like we're going to plow through with these people no matter what and made them even a very minor member of the LLC, you call a partner in a corporation, but a member in an LLC is because since they are an owner, even if it's a, a small percentage, 3%, 5%, a lot of regulations about what they can and can't do by their own choice, like working overtime without getting paid, et cetera, go away because they're a member in the corporation. Totally. Yeah. So those things, it, it it, yeah, it opens up a lot more opportunity, a lot more, more options for navigating certain business challenges. So, um, what what are your sustainable practices? You're kind of big on the fact that this is a sustainable business, and I, I've found that sometimes businesses have pretty good sustainable or even regenerative practices, and when they scale, that's where challenges really start to fall because in the beginning. You do have, and this is what makes forming something like a worker-owned co-op or even a, a multi-member LLC uh, doable in the early stages because everybody's in it for the mission. Everybody's going to get it to happen. And then, you know, dun-dun-dun, reality kind of sets in and like, hey, we got we to gotta get this done or we're going to end up laying off 20 people. And then, you know, it, it kind of leads you toward maybe taking some shortcuts or things like that. How do you guys plan to scale what you're doing? 
Yeah, excellent question. So we never, we, we have no interest in being a national brand, for instance. We don't want to grow this giant thing because because it's not sustainable. We see those challenges uh, as wayposts in the future. Um, our intention is to stay local and to stay small. And right now we have really epic access to a lot of waste stream things. So for the first four years, we were able to glean all of our cardboard 100% out of the waste stream. So we paired up with grocery stores um, to get their half-gallon milk boxes back. So if they were unsoiled, in good condition, and they would cut them, cut them open and fold them for us, and we'd come pick them up. And we collected, we've, we've, for the first four and a half years, we used nothing but those boxes. And we, we have our own stickers that we would put over top. And, um, sometimes we have to permanent marker over some things that aren't supposed to be on there or aren't reflecting our company. And there's, you know, there's, there's also a question of like lack of professional, you know, the, the presentation as far as like, you know, we had to balance that with the presentation and what we really wanted to, how we wanted to show up in the world. But, you know, we've, we allow this cardboard to not just be used once to be recycled for all the energy to make it into a new box. Why not use it a second time? And we do that with glass as well. And right now we're at the scale where a hundred percent of our glass comes from the waste stream. And so we actually plugged into the waste stream of Oregon. We're in Montana. Um, but we actually get once used glass shipped from Oregon from their collection process there. And we're super lucky uh, I think it's the only bottle washer in the country is in Missoula, Montana from a couple of, uh, it's at a brewery, a beer brewery. And the guys are the guy, the, the owner and the brewmaster and even, uh, their lead tech there, they're either from Germany or have spent a lot of time in Germany where they do have all these sustainable practices. You know, Europe is way ahead of us on the curve of, uh, washing and reusing all these different resources and um, so we're lucky to have them. They they imported a bottle washer and we're able to wash and reuse our glass through their facility right here in Missoula, Montana. It's we're beyond lucky that that's here. You know, I, I don't know that you really need to worry about, especially at your scale and not trying to become the next the Coca-Cola of kombucha or whatever about the professionalism of, of a reuse box, because if I'm doing business with a company like yours and one of my motivations is to contribute to a small locally owned sustainable business, I like that I'm getting an old milk crate box or something like that. Cause what you're saying is you're using those for shipping and then you're using the waste stream bottles for packaging, right? Yep. Okay, cool. Um, so you, you guys then when you, when you get into these smaller businesses, you know, you're not going to take over the world. And I think one of the really important things about that, one of the real advantages is we stop seeing competitors as competitors. There's maybe some friendly competition locally or something like that. But if, if I'm running the same type of operation you are, even if I'm local, because you're shipping anyway, like there's so much business in the food and beverage space. And even when you go to a niche like living foods, fermented foods, kombucha, if it's on the shelf, at Albertsons or Kroger, small business guys, they can get caught up in it. You're not going to step on each other's toes. And so since you're not trying to own, you know, if you've ever seen Food, Word, uh, food Wars or, or the food that made us on uh, on History Channel, you see like the war between like Kellogg and Post. Like since that's not going to happen, 
you can actually encourage other businesses to follow your lead, right? Totally. Yeah, we actually have a pretty cool community of uh, fermentation businesses here around Missoula, and we have pretty good connections with most of them. You know, there is sometimes there is still the, the energy of competition, but in all reality, our competition is national national brands, and uh, the national brands they lose quality integrity of the product so fast. And even some larger companies, I wanted to speak on this. Uh, you know, larger kombucha companies they're putting things they either filtering most of the culture out or they're putting chemicals in there that are allowed to be there, but they cause the culture to go inert to maintain shelf life. And so you're losing the, the whole point of the, the probiotic. And so the, the only way to really preserve that is to go local. I would love to see a world where, you know, every, every County, every, every city has nothing but just cool local companies. And we're not trying to ship these you know, mass produced products all over the country and world. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you could sell enough locally to build your business to a, a substantial size to the point where, um, you know, you can pay everybody, you know, you can pay yourself, you, know, you can stock up a little bit of surplus for those lean times. It would actually make sense to ship less or not at all. Once you got to that point and let people have those other markets, because one of the things I found that makes a business efficient, what what things can you not do? Right. It's kind of like Fukuoka's farming methodology. What can I what can I eliminate if I can eliminate a thing and I'm still good, then I should eliminate the thing. It's one less thing to do. Right. Totally. I think keeping it simple is the best way to go. Yeah, it gets gets real complicated real fast when you try to take on too much. You mentioned ceramics earlier too. So like that is that a part of your business as well or is it like a, a revenue center is it or is it kind of its own thing? Is it independent? Yeah, so I, I actually I have my undergrad degree in fine art focused in ceramics. And so it's a major chapter of my life. Um I really I've, I've paired it with uh making fermentation crocs for instance. So I love being able to make these functional objects that help people access fermentation in their own homes. Uh, it's not a really big, you know, I don't, I don't have enough time to really keep up with it. And eventually when I can afford more help here and uh, have more, more of the operation in, in flow, I would like to be able to step into, into that again. Um, but yeah, it's kind of, it was my stepping stone into fermentation when I learned about fermentation crocs in the first place. Um, yeah. And it's just, yeah, my, earlier a past chapter of my life <laughs> can you maybe talk about how people can get into this not just buying product but actually making product like a basic thing that people can do at home to start fermenting their own foods away like just kind of step through it yeah so yeah fermentation is actually very approachable i think people are really they're nervous about it like the, the whole germophobia and like am i doing this right is this going to kill me is this mold okay and, you know, like kimchi and sauerkraut, you can absolutely get a layer of mold on top. You carve it off and it's good to go. You know, there are certain colors of mold you want to avoid, but there, but really as long as it's not getting into the culture, like the brine level is a protective ecosystem. You're basically creating an ecosystem for the natural microbes that are on the vegetables, the sauerkraut or whatever you're giving it those microbes an environment in which to thrive and then they beat out everything else. 
so the molds and the things that would be rotting the food instead of preserving the food have a chance to thrive. Um, but really, you can ferment anything so easily in glass jars. Uh, you can buy, uh, you can literally go outside and get a nice smooth river rock, you know, wash it real good. And that can be the weight that you use to hold your ferment below the brine level. So ideally, you would you would pack whatever you're fermenting into the jar and make sure the brine level is above. And brine is just salt and water. Um, but also, when you're making sauerkraut and kimchi, the, the, the brine actually gets pulled from the vegetables themselves. So as long as you have enough juice in there and you're holding it below the brine level, uh, everything below there is going to do what it needs to do. It's, it's, so it's, it's, it's pretty easy to do in anyone's home with literally just a mason jar, a r- river rock. You can buy grape leaves. Uh, to, it's like a nice little thing that you could put on top underneath the weight, whatever you use as your weight, uh, to separate the, the brine level and anything that might uh, develop on top. But it's actually quite approachable. Well, and you mentioned the grape leaves. I grow muscadines here and some table grapes, and I've always used grape leaves with my ferments. And one thing I've noticed, it's not just kind of like this convenient thing that when you put a weight on it holds everything under the brine, but certain things, I guess it's the tannins or what have you in it, come out better. Like if you make fermented pickles without it, you tend to get these soft, unhappy you know, I don't, maybe not everybody as I do. I get these like kind of like, that's not what I was going for. But when we, I add the grape leaves, I get kind of that crisp, you know, elastic pickle crunch. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I, I have the, whatever, where I, my experience lacks is actually in pickling. I'm really good with, um, krauts and kimchi and then the kombucha, but that's cool to learn about the, uh, the tannins. And I'm not an expert, so I'm guessing that, but I know when I started doing it, the pickles started tasting better. And, uh, so I figure that's how it's, and I think like kraut is probably the place for people to start. And the, the, you mentioned the fear, like my view has always been if something's really wrong, you're probably not going to eat it anyway. If you're using salt and you've got lactic acid going, you know, the big thing that can really knock person down is going to be botulism and can kill somebody. I mean, it's the most toxic. And it's not the botulism itself. It's the botulism toxin the organism makes. You're not going to have a lactic acid fermentation with botulism. It's just not a thing that can, can happen. Yeah, it's definitely super safe. And, you know, we can trust our intuitions, too. If you open something up and smell it and it gives you, your body goes, ooh, don't eat it. Yeah, just don't do it. But like, that's like you're not going to eat a bad egg. When people say, what about a bad egg? You'll know, if you crack an egg and you'll know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We don't trust ourselves enough. I think, you know, we've, we've given that decision making power of what's good and what's bad to other, other, you know, entities, other, other, other sources. Can you give people kind of the base of, of making a kombucha? How, if somebody wants to, to get into doing that at home, how do they do that? Yeah, so just like any other ferment, you know, you have to acquire the active culture. You know, for sauerkraut and kimchi, the active culture is actually in the air and, and on the vegetables that you're going to be fermenting. So for kombucha, you have to take previously brewed kombucha vinegar and add that to your tea and sugar mixture. And so basically, you're taking this active culture and you're giving it food and letting it sit for, you know, long enough. And 
you know, long enough is relative. Some people like their kombucha to be sweeter or some people like it to be more vinegary. Um, and also the, so the, the kombucha culture itself creates a SCOBY. So that's where the yeast and the bacteria live together symbiotically on the surface, like a little mushroom patty. And so it's, it, it helps to have one of those to start, but if you can't get one, you can grow one just from a store bought product. You can just feed uh, a kombucha that you you know, pull off the shelves and, uh, local is, is better. Local is going to be a more vibrant, uh, active culture, uh, wherever you are. But, um, yeah, you just, you, you basically just feed the culture, give it what it wants and let it do its thing. Um, I guess there's people that are like full on kombucha aficionados the way some people are like wine aficionados or something like that. Like there's certain, certain maybe bacterial strains or certain flavors or certain time, like, cause there's so many variables, right? Like the longer you take something, the more it, 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 you know, converts sugars over and what have you. Yeah. So there's definitely, there's a plethora of different, uh, probiotics that can, you know, be within a culture and they will give you different flavors. You know, there can be, um, profiles that, you might not want. And then there's, so there's like this, this list of yeast strains, there's this list of bacteria strains and those live together to create the kombucha culture. Uh, it's similar to like a June, June tea. That's basically kombucha that's fed with honey and not sugar. And so there's also, there's active cultures that are in the raw honey. If you, if you're using raw honey that get involved in that and, yeah, it's a very diverse world as far as that all goes. Is there a, uh, a risk or something you can do wrong that allows the wrong type of yeast to get involved? And I don't think it would make anybody unhealthy, but when I'm doing alcoholic fermentations, for instance, and I'm introducing a yeast for that, um, in not all, but in most instances, I'm trying to keep out these wild yeasts because they're going to create that lactic fermentation. And I don't mind the competition. It might it might put an off flavor in. I actually like to use lactic fermentations incorporate, in, you know, incorporate with regular yeast in, uh, in meads because that leads to some really unique things. Um, and there are certain beers like Lambics that you would do that with. But what happens when uh, an alcohol fermenting yeast and sugar get together, they have a party and poop out alcohol. So can a, can it, you know, if you got a good SCOBY going and all that, can you, do you ever have a kombucha that turns into some sort of a, a fruit wine? Uh, well, we, it can happen. It, when I was first learning how to brew kombucha, I was experimenting with, uh, different things in my own home. Uh, and I definitely accidentally created some more higher alcoholic content, um, versions of kombucha. By using, uh, instead of using tea and sugar, I was just feeding it with fruit juice and some of those things would have natural other yeast that got involved and yeah, absolutely. And so commercially we have to keep things really on point and, uh, you have to maintain the balance between the bacteria and the yeast. You want them to be pretty equal in, in activity and certain situations can cause one to outcompete the other. And then instead of being symbiotic, they become you know, they don't, they don't work as well together. So it's definitely a balancing act. That's a big deal. Is there any way you would know if you were doing your own home fermentation that that had kind of happened to you? Like when it happens the other way, you 
absolutely no, because you start to get that uh, kind of funky, you know, barnyard flavor smell, which may or may not be welcome in what you're doing, but you do kind of know what happened where, you know, alcohol fermentation is pretty, uh, pretty, it's not real assertive, right? Especially in something where you'd only get a little bit. I mean, cause there may be some people that actually worry about a little, would, would all of it, would you say have a little bit of alcohol in it or, or none or how's that work? Yeah. So, yeah. So the yeast in the culture is producing alcohol. It's not a high yielding, uh, alcohol, but the bacteria in the colony is actually metabolizing those alcohols into B vitamins and organic acids. So that's where it balances itself out. As long as your yeast doesn't get too far ahead of your bacteria, then you're going to have a, a technically a non-alcoholic beverage. Um, if you are going to be using more, uh, fruit juices and maybe things that have other yeast, uh, on the surface of them, if you juice them yourself, yeah, you could, you could definitely get higher alcohol contents, but, um, as long as the balance is on, it's pretty, pretty safe. Can you maybe just talk a little bit? I mean, we, we kind of alluded to this. So you had some real health issues. Like, what was the difference in your life when you started to regularly consume these living foods? And expand on that too with like, what is your diet? I'm, I'm a real heavy kind of keto carnivore vegetables, a little bit of fermented stuff, occasional drink guy. Um, I, I think you're kind of in the, on the other side of it. And I've always said this that there's, there's, a lot of people are like, this is the way to eat or this is the way to eat. And I'm, I'm like, pretty much every option other than Cheetos and the standard American diet is probably better. How, where, where do you kind of come down on, on, on the food intake side of things and, and what kind of change in your life has it resulted in? Yeah. So, um, you know, I consider if it comes from a plant, as in a plant that grows from the ground, it's good to eat. If it comes from a plant, as in a factory plant, then I'm not real interested. Um, but, uh, you know, I've been anywhere from vegetarian to vegan to, you know, omnivore in my life. And at this point, you know, I do incorporate some meats into my diet, but um, I'm way more interested in things that have been uh, hunted or, you know, something that has a little, it's a little more connected to the, to the, to the land. Um yeah, I definitely, the, the quality of what you're getting is super important. Um, yeah. And, and the other thing I was asking about, like, did, did, were you always eating this way or was this a change that you made? And if so, what happened after that change? Yeah. So, yeah, when I was uh, younger, I was actually pretty unhealthy, um, drinking lots of soda, lots of sugars, um, yeah, candy all the time. And so, it was about the same time that I had this, you know, re- realized the benefit that I got from using the raw foods to fight the babesiosis and limes. And, the, you know, I still had to do antibiotics, by the way. So I'm not telling people that they should, <laughs> if they get babesiosis and limes, oh, just, just eat raw foods and you'll be fine. That's not the case. You will definitely have a problem. Um, so I still had to do the antibiotics. But, um, you know, the, the more alkaline that we can make our bodies, uh, you know, really our health vitality goes up. So acidic bodies is like, you know, cancer cannot thrive in a body that's alkaline. That's, and so you can alkalize your body. Eating raw foods alkalizes your body. You know, uh, drinking kombucha alkalizes your body. Um, and so I think that's where a lot of the health benefits come from is actually just keeping your pH physically in, in check 
and not leaning too into the acidic range. So can you expand on that? Because this is one of these places I've always been a huge skeptic. Because I know biochemically, if I change the pH of my blood, I die, up or down. So when you say move your body toward alkaline, what part of your body are you talking about? Because it damn sure isn't your blood. Yeah, so you know your body, our organs and everything, are keeping our blood at the same pH. So if you if you take in a bunch of acidic stuff, your body's doing what it needs to do so that it incorporates it and maintains a certain uh, stasis. Um, yeah, so I guess you know it's if it's not your blood. I mean, I, I would assume everything you, you know your pH. I think can still change, you know, you can, you can lean one way or the other, but I think it's, it is important. I think to, to lean, we're not talking like super alkaline. We're talking more in the middle, um, balanced area. You know, that actually can make some sense because I, 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 like I said, I, one of the things I've always pushed back on with this is that you're, you're not going to shift your blood pH. Like I said, or unless you die, right? That's when you, but if your body's having to do work to maintain that and you can make that biochemical process easier on the body, then the body has the, the energy to do other things. And it's, there is no doubt that when a person dies, well, they go acidic really quick. And, and one of the kind of theories on this, especially come out of like Eastern medicine and Eastern religions is that when a biological organism is a decomposer or something that can break down our systems comes along and we're tending to, toward the acidic side, it's like, oh, this, this, this thing is ready to be broken down and, and, and returned to the earth. Like, you know, mushrooms colonizing you or something like that and making you soil again, right? And that when we're toward the alkaline, we're seen as not so attractive. So I, I guess that kind of makes sense that it's not so much a shift in your actual pH, but what does the body got to do to maintain it? That, that oh, I'm open to that. Yeah, I think uh, I would be more talking about in the, the gut through the digestive system where the pH is really happening and better to lean towards the, the alkaline. You know, we can have, you know, we are mostly, you know, bacteria, yeast to funguses. That's, you know, this, this meat suit that is, is really an aquarium that we're walking around in. And most of it is this interaction of all these microbes and all this like teeming life inside of us. And you can have bad gut flora that can like, even for instance, like people with uh, high sugar diets, you know, you get these yeasts and these microorganisms organisms that literally excrete hormones that tell you that you want sugar that like, you know, feed me Seymour, like literally inside of you, these little things are like manipulating you to eat more sugar. And so if, if you have too much of that, you know, you're going to have those cravings. That's what really cravings are coming from. And that's the same with, you know, carbs and everything else. You know, if you, if you have, you know, an unhealthy gut flora, it's going to lean you towards having these cravings of food that it's good for them. It's good for, you know, what's living inside of you, but it's not necessarily good for you. How do you answer, because I've been challenged with a few times, and I have a way to answer. I'm just interested in how you would answer. If I eat something like a, a kraut or an escabeche or something that I fermented, or I consume a, a kombucha, it's got all this great, wonderful living uh, uh, organisms in it, right? And then it goes into my stomach, which is very, very acidic, and it 
it, 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 it plays in there. And most of that, those living organisms, my stomach is going to kill. Right. And then the, the real health is in my bowel, like my, my, my upper and lower and my small intestine mainly, uh, where I want lots of these living organisms. And how is it that we can take a probiotic or we can consume a food with a probiotic and enhance our gut health if our stomach's going to kill it? Totally fair. So, you know, the sauerkraut, the, the, the probiotics that are in sauerkraut and, and kombucha, they're already in an acidic environment. I'm sure it's still pretty harsh, but, you know, though some of those things are making it through for sure and integrating into your overall system. And so I think it's it's really about little by little integration. You're not going to, you know, have one big dose of something and change your, your whole situation all at once. I, I have heard that, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, buying probiotic supplements and that you're just, you know, throwing those back, a lot of those aren't like the, they don't have the shell to get through the stomach to then deliver the probiotic to the intestines. And so you got to find some of the, some of the companies are actually mindful of that and aren't just trying to make money off off selling a product that people are interested in. Um, so yeah, I think it's, is that that kind of stuff is worth looking into. So, you know, that you're actually going to get the benefit from what you're looking for. I also kind of look at it this way. I do believe some of it makes the trip through a lot. Like it's, you know, merged with other foods and things like that. And it, it is an acidic fermentation. It's not quite as low as the pH of a healthy stomach. But the other side of it is I kind of look at it like there are people that get freaked out if their chicken eats an egg. Right. And if a chicken is walking around and finding an undamaged egg and eating it, that's a, that's a stew chicken. That's where that chicken goes or for roosters in. They get to go be coke of or something like that. But if you have a chicken or chickens that when an egg gets damaged are eating that egg, that's great because you don't have a rotten, festering, nasty egg in your coop. So they're cleaning up their own mess. But the other side of that is it's great for a chicken to eat an egg. Because inside an egg is everything you need to make a chicken. And I think when we're, we're consuming healthy fermented foods, we're not just bringing those biological organisms into our body. So if some of them get knocked out in the gut or the stomach before they get into the gut, no big deal. What I've done is I've, it's like, it's like spraying compost tea. Right. That's kind of how I look at it. You spray compost tea. Yes, there's, there's microorganisms in the compost tea. But if I started out with a cup of compost and I made five gallons of compost tea and then I'm diluting the compost tea and spraying it on the garden, I'm putting a tiny amount of actual living organism on those plants. But I'm feeding everybody exactly what they need, exactly the way they want it. And I think a lot of times when we're eating escabeche, we're eating krauts, we're drinking kombuchas, uh, kefir, th- all of these wonderful fermented foods. I'm big on, uh, lebna because, or, or yogurt cheese, call it what you want, because yogurt to me still has too much sugar. But if I take that secondary ferment with it, I'm much more comfortable and I'll, you know, I'll take jalapenos or something like that and, and fill them with it, uh, or, you know, flavor it any flavor you want to. And I think we're feeding the gut floor as much as we're you know, stocking it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think if it's not probiotics, those things are breaking down into prebiotics that nourish, you know, the gut health and the, the, the flora that you do have thriving in your gut. It's, I think it's all, it's definitely all supportive. 
while I, I do also believe that some of it's getting through and integrating into your system. Yeah, and I think with an agreement with you on that it's like a, it's a process over time. Like we're constantly inoculating and then the things that need, like I think our bodies know what to do. And we've just destroyed our body chemistry. And I don't mean you and I in particular or specifically people listening. I mean, the Western world, the modern world has destroyed body chemistry. And a lot of the developing world has destroyed body chemistry due to lack of nutrition versus the wrong nutrition. And when we start feeding it and it has the things that it needs, our natural state, state in life is health. And I think we've actually gotten to a point where, like, people actually believe if it wasn't for vaccines – and prescriptions, nobody would be healthy ever. And I haven't, other than uh, when I had COVID, because I believed that it worked, I used uh, HCQ and zinc during that period, and I believed it did work. If I take that out, I haven't taken a prescription medication since the 1990s. And if that's what makes us healthy, I, I should be dead. And I think what makes us healthy is eating the right food, and it's You know, again, you can come from a vegetarian, a vegan, a carnivore, uh, an omnivoric, all healthy, natural whole foods, like any one of these mindsets. And I've, I've met people that are healthy with all of them. I, I think it, it takes a lot of effort for the vegan to do it. And I've met a lot of vegans that you go, dude, you're, you're not healthy. But I've met some that are. I've met a lot of healthy vegetarians. If they'll eat eggs and some dairy, or I've also met a lot of like, they're not really vegetarians. They're like piscatare vegetarians. They eat a little bit of fish. Really, really healthy. And it's because, like you said, if it comes from a plant that grows on the ground, that's one thing. I mean, my, my thing, I, I like that. I might steal that. But my thing has always been if it comes in a box, and I don't mean it got shipped to you in a box. I mean, you go to the store and it's in a box. And then you turn it around. There's more than four ingredients in it. You really probably should not be eating that. That's not human food. If you, or you know, if, would your would your great 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 grandfather, if you handed it to him? I'm not saying if they tried it, they might be like, oh, that's damn good, and eat it. Because if you gave if you gave a guy from 1814 a bag of Cheetos, once he put one in his mouth, he's probably going to get that dopamine hit and knock him down. But he wouldn't recognize it as food. And if you're If your five-removed great-grandfather would look at it and say, oh, that's food before you told what it was, it's probably something that we should be, you know, at least open to eating. Yeah, think about all the preservatives that are in those foods that make them shelf-stable so they can sit on the grocery store for months and months and months at a time. Like, what is that doing to your gut health? If it's keeping things from growing and, like, you know, spoiling the foods that are on the shelves, what's it doing inside of you? That's like, yeah, that's your spot on there. So can you uh, talk a little bit? I'm gonna, I'm, I'm putting out a last call for questions from the audience here, and we'll hit those and we'll wrap up. Before I do that, though, you mentioned something on here called Gnome Fest. That, that can't not be cool. So tell us about Gnome Fest and how it uh, applies to your business. Yeah, so it's really it's our way of giving back to the community. As a small business, you know, we're so grateful to be supported and to be able to do what we love to do. Um, you know, on the scale that we're doing it. And it also, this is my ceramics coming back into um, uh, this program. Basically it came from the same summer camp that I, you know, got the tick born diseases from. Uh, it was a program in the pottery studio where we made gnome inspired things, you know, and then but I, when I became head of the program there, 
uh, I turned it into a scavenger hunt. And, you know, the, the kids at this camp is in Pennsylvania. It was a pretty affluent camp. Uh, they were pretty highly disregarding of, you know, littering, like the camp, the camp, camp was covered in like candy wrappers. They just didn't care. Uh, they just, you know, nobody really taught them that we shouldn't just throw our trash willy nilly wherever. And so we would just see this trash all over the, ca- the campus. And so I'm like, okay, we're going to hide these gnomes all over the property here. And then we're going to tell the kids, like, go out and, you know, look for these things and pick up litter, litter along the way. Within two days, the camp was like pristine. And the owner was like, I don't know what you did, but keep doing it. And, um, yeah, so like I, I spent five summers at this camp and just saw how, you know, the whimsical magic of gnomes kind of invokes something alive in all of us. It invokes the inner child of all of us. We all need to play. We all need to be lighthearted, especially this day and age, you know, the history that we're living in unprecedented times, it's tough. So we need to find levity and find a way to, to, you know, be joyful and tap into a, a grounded place, um, yeah, so I brought Gnome Fest to Missoula by making these little gnomes. Same thing. We, we, I make all these little gnomes. We hide them all over the parks and trails here regionally across the Bitterroot Valley of Montana, and we encourage people to go find them and pick up litter along the way. So it's our, our way to give back to our community and to encourage people to take responsibility for our stewardship of the earth, uh, you know, super hippy-dippy all the way to the max. Um, but it's really fun. We like the engagement and the community involvement of the people that get out there and participate. They have a blast. Uh, families have a blast, you know, kids from age 99 to, to one that have a great time, uh, participating and just a cool way to meet the community and give back. So it's like gnome based geocaching without the GPS. Yep, they're just kind of they're they're out there. We have a uh, we have a, a map that we have on our website, and so you can you can see which trails and which parks have been hit, but there's no marker indicating exactly where they are. We we thought about the idea of like maybe somehow putting in some sort of GPS tracker on it, but then it gets weird with these items going home with people. And yeah, I don't want to. I'm not really into big tech and what how that could get hacked. And like, I don't want. Uh, yeah, we're just going to keep it small and. Keep it simple. Let the- you know, I, I think there's something really in that, too, that, that I noticed that, like, when my wife and I go to the beach and we go walk and we look for shells. I think human beings, we are hardwired to forage and to look for things and to kind of treasure hunt. Because our ancestors, right, it was the one that could spot all the berries that were ripe, you know, and pick those berries and eat them that, or, you know, that would be able to look and see like, oh, there was a, the, the lions killed something here and they drug it away. And those bones with the marrow in them are that way. Like there's a certain, it's, it's in like a positive dopamine response in finding that special thing. If you, anybody's ever been out and you're picking your first tomatoes of the year and then they all look kind of pink and they're not quite ready and I want to eat one anyway. And then you see that really dark red one or even when a lot of them are ripe and you see that one, you're like, Oh, I know that one is peak, right? Or a strawberry or something. Like, I think we're just hardwired for that. So I think that's probably why it works away. And what a great entrepreneurial thing, because if you want to know where to go, you got to go to the website first. So I think that's kind of brilliant too. Yeah. It's a fun marketing program for us, for sure. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it helps us get the word out. We are a super small business ultimately. Um, now in our fifth year, we're finding some, some fun, some good momentum. 
Uh, but it's really been an uphill battle. You know, I worked, you know, five odd jobs here and there and worked another full-time job before, you know, while trying to bootstrap this business and get it off the ground. And so it's been a, it's been a, a challenge and we, we haven't had a marketing uh, budget. So this, this is our way of kind of doing that grassroots style. All right. What I'd like to do now is take some audience uh, comments, and questions, and I can comment, or you can comment, and you can let me know what you want to comment on or respond to. I'm not sure they're all questions. Anything I saw with all caps during the, uh, uh, the, the 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 interview here, I just star them, and then we go through and see what we got. Um, Packeret says food specifically to remediate intestinal damage from celiac. Wheat allergy disease. You got anything on that? Because I don't. Other than stop eating wheat. For sure. Yeah, I think. Well, I think the biggest problem with wheat is the gene, the genetic modification of those things. Uh, I've known people who uh, have. It'll, it's not celiacs, but they have gluten intolerance on a, a lighter level. And once they're they're fermenting the the, the uh, glutens with sourdough and like sourdoughs and using organic flours, they have a better response. Uh, but as far as healing uh, intestinal damage, fiber, you want uh, soluble fiber. I learned uh, a bit about that from a gal, um, and it just it helps your system rebuild the layers that line your intestines that help you absorb nutrition. So, uh, so insoluble and soluble fiber, so finding a good source of that. You know, I'm, I'm no expert, but that's one piece of advice I would offer that question yeah i'll add that and it's the word went away from my head while you were talking and i knew it before you started but there are certain starches that uh, actually reduce blood sugar and they are only only converted to anything we can use in the lower intestine and there are certain plants that have these Inulin is the word I'm looking for. And so some plants have a little bit, and some plants, like almost all their starch, is inulin. And one of those is Apis Americana, which is groundnut, right? So groundnut, um, not as much, but Jerusalem artichokes move toward that way. And the Jerusalem artichoke is actually delicious fermented. So that might be a fermented food that would kind of double stack on that. Uh, this is not really a question, but K-Bonk says local waste stream is a gold mine. And I think if you can tie into any waste stream and figure out what to do with it. And my biggest hurdle has not been finding things I could do something with. It's been getting the company that has the waste to give you the waste because of laws and regulations and fears. Like I could literally take as much uh, vegetable waste as a grocery store could give me. I could pull up and fill a pickup truck every day and do something with it. I could feed it to my birds and whatever they didn't eat, it would compost. And I, But I have found that sometimes that's difficult. How did you manage to um, negotiate getting this waste stream in, you know, and, and getting them to let go of it without fear of liability or something like that? Yeah, so uh, the, the one store here in Missoula that uh, allowed us to source our boxes – from them. They're called the good food store. I used to work there. So I had a really good relationship with the grocery department. I still do. Most of the people that I worked with there, a lot of them are still there and we've got a really great rapport uh, with, with them and the management. And we do um, 
some cross-pollinated marketing. So we, we give them kudos on social media for giving us the cardboard so people know that they're also doing what they can to be sustainable. And so it becomes a marketing platform for both of us by doing the right thing. That's, that's very cool, man. Um, next up we have from uh, K-Box K in the house. Have you now the comments and questions? How long should a SCOBY last, and uh, how do you care for them? I think the, almost indefinitely if you keep using it, and I think that's how you do it, right? You got anything to add to that? Yeah, so as long as you keep it fed, you know, if you if you tuck it away in a cupboard and forget about it and, and it loses, you know, it runs out of food, it'll eventually starve to death. Um, but every time you brew, a new SCOBY forms on top. And so you kind of have this cycle that um, that's why it's so abundant. You know, it kind of teaches us a lesson. Nature, if we look, if you watch nature, we can see how abundant it is. Um, but, um, yeah, it, you know, you, as long as you feed it, you know, a SCOBY, you don't have to use the new one. You can use the old one over and over and over again as long as you feed it and keep it in balance. And you can also then share your scobies and create more fermenters. And I know a lot of folks do that. Uh, we'll give K-Bonk one more before we, we go on to others here. Uh, what are the best sugars if you're keto or will the sugars get terminated in the processing? Some. And so I'll, I'll go with this first and you can add whatever you want to it, Drew. Um, the best sugars for you if you want to remain in a ketogenic state are none, right? So that's what we'll come out of the gate with that none. Um, but I'm not a purist and, and I think like I'm not going to drink a uh, honey sweetened kombucha every day because that is going to totally throw me out of ketosis. It's going to totally mess with what I'm trying to do from a dietary standpoint, but I might have a cup of kombucha here and there. And then my other thought was, and I'd actually talked to Drew about this myself before we started live here is that you can take the fermentation of a kombucha way into kind of the vinegary tasting state. And at that point, there is not a ton of sugar that's available there. And if that were to be then uh, too tart for you, you could use a, a sweetener uh, right before you drink it, like a Lakanto, which is an erythritol and uh, monk fruit mix, which is what I'm drinking in my tea right here. It has zero effect on blood sugar, but there is no such thing as keto-friendly actual sugar the entire point is to keep the blood sugar down but i don't think that there's problems with occasionally imbibing whether that's a, a glass of meat with some alcohol or something with some sugar in it our ancestors i truly believe ate a very low carbohydrate diet but i does i don't think that means that when they came along and found uh, you know, late hanging persimmons that were bleded well and sweet. They didn't eat that stuff that we were kind of designed to eat these different things at different times of the year in different quantities. Uh, my, my contention is people like me, you know, O, O blood types were the most ancient blood type. We're, you know, we're, we're either Nordic or we're like cold weather European ancestry. We eat a little bit of carbohydrate and we just, like, we just go. And then there's other people that they can eat like this all the time. And I think everybody needs to figure out what works best for them. But you do convert an awful lot of sugar when we do these fermentation process. We definitely reduce it, right? Yeah. So I think that the, the best sugar as far as digesting it is going to be natural occurring fruit sugars, uh, not, you know, processed uh, cane sugars. And we, we actually use an organic, uh, unfiltered, it's like 
turbinado sugar. So all the, all the mineral content still in is not bleached, all that crap. Um, and that's better for the culture, but we try to let the culture metabolize most of it before we get to the bottling stage so that only the fruit sugar is residing in there. Um, yeah. All right. Next up from Jeff, uh, what do you think about fermenting mushrooms and the benefits? I don't got no idea. I didn't know anybody fermented mushrooms. Have you ever even heard of that, Drew? Totally. Fermented mushrooms are awesome. Yeah. So, um, I just got into that here recently. Um, I wild foraged some chanterelles this last fall, dried them and then, uh, put them into a ferment or, and it was just that, that was just the chanterelle mushrooms in the ferment and they turned out great. I think it's a, a yeah. Um, I, I don't How really, do you do that? Is it just brine and they have enough on them to, to kick off? Yep. They, they get enough, uh, either from the air, just the, the living air that gets in there and gets going, but I'm sure there's natural yeast occurring, uh, natural probiotics that are on the actual, uh, mushrooms themselves. And is it what you would expect a flavor profile that's just moved toward that acidic tart flavor? Because that sounds freaking awesome. I just didn't even know you could do that. Yeah, it's actually a really diverse, it's like a, it's a pretty cool, like the, the flavor just gets so much deeper and, you know, they're, they're, they're still raw. They're, I, I didn't cook them. I just dried them and fermented them. It's hard to ferment fresh mushrooms. Okay. Um, it's actually recommended. You can, you can, but it's hard. Uh, they can get slimy and weird and it's almost better to, dehydrate them and then rehydrate them into the, into the ferment. Do you, do you just make up a standard fermenting brine then and just pour it over them? Is that? Yep. Pretty much. Okay, cool. Hey, this one must be for you because people know I don't eat breakfast. I eat two meals a day. Uh, Fred says, can you give an example of what your diet's like breakfast, lunch, dinner type? I mean, sure yeah. it's different every day, but. Yeah, so I've I've followed uh I gotten into intermittent fasting. Um so I I don't really eat breakfast a whole lot. My and now I'm at a point where my body doesn't want it. If I try to eat breakfast in the morning, it's just like I don't feel good. You know, it's it slows me down. I get way more energy just from leaning into my fast a little further and keeping letting my body not have to focus on digestion uh, as I start my day. Um, yeah, I like to, I enjoy a lot of, uh, raw fruits and vegetables and I eat eggs. Uh, I definitely, I try to get my animal protein in the best way that I can. Uh, I focus on getting those making sure I source those eggs in really mindful ways. We have an awesome farmer's market that I'm, I sell our product at. So I have access to really good local farm fresh eggs. Well, um, Pointers on foods that remediate mental distress, memory, depression, anxiety, ADD, anything there? Yeah, definitely getting rid of sugar. Getting rid of sugar is going to be a good one. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, you know, our our ability to uh, produce serotonin, That's most of our serotonin is coming from our gut. You know, it's a brain hormone, but it's being produced uh, in the gut. So balancing, um, balancing your gut health, it can definitely help. Um, yeah, there are pretty, we didn't, this might be a lot to get into, but, um, there's actually therapies that are stool transplants that might seem really gross. Um, but, uh, people who will get 
stool transplants of from other uh, donors to re-establish proper gut health in themselves. Uh, so that that produces a pretty drastic, swift um, change from what I heard, but that might be something to look into. That is indeed a thing, and it, it doesn't sound fun, but I, I've heard good things about the results from it. And I would think, say with any person that has a emotional, mental, from from brain fog to depression to ADD, et cetera, um, I have some friends who have issues they're dealing with. Most of them are prior service military, and I'll often talk to them about, you know, if it's not, if it's not what I do, which is keto, like really getting into a good diet and losing weight and feeling better physically. And I, I usually get some of a pushback because these are not people that are doing nothing with this. They're not people sitting around going, I'm depressed. They're people that are, you know, they're getting counseling and they're, they're doing things in their life to try to improve it. And I'm like, I, I don't, I'm not calling it a band aid, but I'm telling you, when you feel better physically, you feel better emotionally, spiritually and mentally. And if you fix the, like, you may or may not be able to fix the emotional issue that you have or the mental issue that you have. Um, but we know we can fix the physical. So let's fix the physical and see what effect that has on the mental. And I believe that we are not these separate things. I'm not a physical thing and a mental thing. Like, I am a biochemical spiritual machine. And there may be some part of that that when this body goes away, goes and does something else. But while we're here, we're joined. And to think that your physical health, your diet, et cetera, is not going to have an effect on your mental state, I find that to be completely ridiculous. And it's part of the indoctrination of Western medicine, because if I give you alcohol, it will affect your mental state. I mean, there's there's no way around that. Right. Like you, you will become you know, mentally impaired. And so that alone says that the substance we eat in our mouth, put through our body and digest and process can change our mental state. If I can give you an amphetamine and bring you up, if I can give you coffee and bring you up, if I can give you a, a chamomile and lemon balm tea, and then that will actually help you go into sedated state. If we can take something like uh, out of the cannabinoid world, if we take something like CBN and like, that's like the master cannabinoid and it doesn't make you high, but a little bit of that, at night, you're going to sleep. There is, it's not optional. If you, if you've ever tried that as, as a sleep aid, it is, you're, you might as well ate a volume, except you don't get any of the bad side effects. All of these things are things that we ingest and they affect our mental and our physical and how we like how we feel about our physical state. So to, to, to think that we can separate diet from mental health. And, and I'm not saying that if you have a good diet, you will have good mental health. I'm saying if you have a bad diet, whatever the state of your mental health is, will probably be worse so since we can move both kind of up the needle, maybe we should do that first. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely, yeah, you're spot on there. we got to think of it in a very holistic way, um, specifically with memory. And um, so, like, uh, we have a kombucha product that has lion's mane mushroom in it. And uh, lion's mane is just incredibly beneficial to uh, synapse function, mental clarity, focus, it helps you rebuild your synapse connections and it protects the myelon sheath. So if you have a, an electric wire, the rubber coating that keeps the electricity from just misfiring anywhere, any which way it's, the, it allows the synapses to fire and make it, make the connection to where it's going. Um, yeah. And if, uh, I think also, I don't know if we want to get into it, but, um, microdosing, 
uh, psilocybin is actually a huge benefit, I think, as a natural remedy for anxiety, depression. I've seen it help a lot of people that I know. Uh, yeah, and I'm really glad to see it being decriminalized and um, people really opening their minds to that kind of medicine because uh, it's profound. It's, it's from the earth. It's not a, a chemical. It's not a pharmaceutical. Um, yeah, I think it's a really good thing to do some research into. I think it's one of those things I would definitely want to be guided along with, and I've, I've never gone that route, but I've heard some really good things about it, and I, I think it is really, really a safe thing to do if you have guidance, especially when we talk about micro-dosing. We don't, uh, I, I'm a big fan of Paul Stamets, and I, I laughed my ass off, but I also don't think it's the way to go. Uh, have you ever heard the Joe Rogan interview with him where he talked about his first mushroom experience uh, you know, psilo- you know, psychedelic mushrooms, and he bought a bag, whatever the hell that meant, and he had no idea what a dosage was, and I think he, like, took half the bag and, like, ate it, just ate it down, and he ended up in the middle of a storm hanging onto a tree, yelling at the sky while lightning was flying, and the tree was rocking back and forth, uh, and it lasted a long time, but he said he could actually, like, feel the forest moving like he was part of the forest, and I'm like... I don't know that that's the way to go, but I do know that there are a lot of stories of people going that route that have completely transformed their life for the better. For sure. Yeah, I think that, you know, a microdose, technically you don't feel it at all. There's no psychedelic effect. Um, But I think there are definite benefits from doing a mental reset uh, with a larger dose, for sure. I've I've, I've personally benefited from that. My life would not be the same. You know, my mental well-being and my my personal journey through trauma, you know, childhood trauma would not be the same or as supported if I hadn't uh, experimented with such things. Yeah. And I would say with guidance and good people around you, just like especially first time for real. Uh, Ron says, can you drink too much probiotics? I don't know that you can. I think maybe you could put too much acid into your, your, your stomach, you know, lactic acid in your stomach. I don't know that you could really hurt yourself with it. I do know like the super mega doses in capsules that too much of that can cause some digestive distress. Thoughts? Yeah, that's about what, um, I don't know that you can overdo it too much with natural living foods. Uh, but I would be careful with, um, the capsules. So um, where to find good fermented re- fermentation recipes? Um, to me, there's tons of websites out there. My favorite book, and I looked this up so that I would have it ready, and it's on my website. It's at tspaz.com. Fermented Vegetables by Christopher and Kristen Saki, or Shockey. Um, I, I've had real good results using theirs. And, but I think what you'll find with a lot of these recipes is that it will either be a thing that you can – um, not use a brine like a cabbage or something where there's enough moisture will come out of the food and you kind of put salt on it by eye. They can give, you can do weighing and exact measurements, but you get a feel for it really quick. Your, your great grandmother didn't have a scale when she made sauerkraut and threw some caraway seeds in it for flavor. Um, and, and then you have a, you know, kind of a basic brine that you pour over something that doesn't have enough moisture. And so it's all recipes, but to me, unless we're in the, I'll let you talk on kombucha because I've not made it. But when it comes to fermenting vegetables, it's all the same. It's like, I think that would taste good with some kind of lactic funk. So put salt on it or put brine on it, stick it in a jar. And at about the third or fourth day, start tasting it. 
And when it tastes the way you want to lower the temperature, slow down the fermentation and start eating it, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Yeah, I think that's a great approach. Uh, um, you know, there's so many different recipes online that you can look up. Um, but really, um, maybe add a little bit of lemon juice, you know, all these different little things that can really get super dynamic and create a really depth. I'm going to take over for a second because you're breaking up there and I'll, I'll bring you back. We're almost done. Of course, we have to have a, a technical glitch. Uh, but if we give it a second on your side, maybe you'll be able to come back and finish up. Um, I, I completely agree with you that the experimentation, like the best slaw I ever made in my life. I, I, I read something somewhere about they used to put apples in coleslaw and not coleslaw in, uh, in, uh, in kraut. And I was like, Oh, so I, I just shredded like to the volume of cabbage. I put like, um, maybe 20% that volume in shredded apple. And then I was like, apple, kraut, sausage, German, caraway seeds. And I hit it with, you know, I went Bavarian with it. It was freaking amazing. And there was no recipe for that. It was just having some fun and, and experimenting. Yeah, absolutely. It's super fun to just, you know, see what you can go, go to the store and like, what are your favorite vegetables? You know, I think uh, beets, ginger, uh, yeah, garlic. So, you know, those things are really fun to add in. And the last one here is thoughts on raw vinegar daily. Um, I, it's not something I do daily, but it is a kind of a beverage I like to consume. You use like a plain sparkling water and like a teaspoon of, uh, of an active vinegar. And I find that to be something that's kind of refreshing. And I, I don't really think it can hurt anything. Are you big vinegar guy too, or do you stick on the other side of things? I know I definitely, um, I, I appreciate a, a stiff vinegar from time to time, but you know, I, I don't think it's not, I don't think it's super safe to say, you know, take anything daily. I think it's really important to tune into our own bodies and like, you know, our bodies are super intuitive, uh, conscious things. We can tune in and we can even like, you know, quiet the mind. Uh, I'm a, I'm a practitioner of meditation. Um, and you know, we can glean a lot of information if we just quiet the mind and let the body talk, you know, what does my body need for me today? Um, and so maybe you do need, you know, vinegar, you know, three or four times a, a, a day or a week, sorry to, for your, what your body needs from you personally. But, um, yeah, I think to, uh, I would encourage people to tune in, find ways to tune into your body and to listen, uh, to the, what that quiet voice that the body does have. Absolutely. And can you tell people again here, I'm going to put your domain name up, but any other resources you have or places they can follow you or how they can learn more, how they can get, get a hold of your uh, product and have it shipped to their door in a recycled box in a recycled bottle. Yeah. So we are, um, we're available. We're still pretty limited as far as our, our reach and we, we aim to keep it that way, but we are around the Northwest um, but you can, if you, you can, we're cleared through natural grocers. So if you request us at natural grocers, it's likely that we can get to you, uh, at least on the Northwest area, California, Oregon, Washington. Um, yeah, our website is back to the mother dot earth. Uh, my email is drew at back to the mother dot earth and our Instagram handle and Facebook is at back to the mother. 
and we do a lot of fun stuff. I like to share, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of growing things. So, uh, and you know, we're never going to import and use pineapple as a flavor of our kombucha because it's not sustainable. Uh, the fact that we can go to our grocery store and pick up a pineapple is amazing. It's a, it's a miracle. Um, but I am growing a pineapple in my apartment. And it's fruiting right now. So once a year, when this pineapple fruits, we have one keg of pineapple kombucha to give to sell at the farmer's market. Uh, so that's a fun thing to watch. If you want to watch pineapple grow, follow us on Instagram at back to the mother. And yeah, it's been really great being on the show. I really appreciate it, Jack. No, it's awesome. And that's really cool too. Like I've, I've always threatened that someday I'm going to have a, a good enough greenhouse that I am going to, uh, grow enough coffee to do a batch of like a coffee stout or a coffee mead once a year. And I think it's kind of cool to do things like that. And then I think we actually start to really appreciate the fact that I can go buy a pineapple today if I want to. Right. I I don't think we understand the momentous effort that goes into having this globalized food source. And it's, it's part appreciation. It's part also respect, right? Like, there's a reason I grow so much of my own food because I know that that magical system isn't actually magical. It, it's predicated on a lot of things working together and a lot of people getting along and it can go away for a short time or a long time. It all depends. So, uh, really cool. I'll be being with us again today and I fixed my error there. I left the the out. It's back to the mother dot earth and I've got that up on the screen for you. I'll make sure all the links to all your social media, your ceramic site, and all that other stuff you sent in with your submission are in the audio notes today. Guys, if you're sitting here watching this live right now and you want all these great resources, just get over to this phenomenal podcast about an hour from now so I can eat my, my breakfast lunch, which is my, you know, my one early meal. Uh, I'll do that when Drew and I get off here and uh, – uh, then after that, I'll, I'll get that up and you can get all of those. And if you are new to this and you want to uh, find out more about what we do at the Survival Podcast, the website is thesurvivalpodcast.com or tspc.co if you don't want to type in all those letters. We've done over 3,000 episodes now. I think this is 3,049 or 50 today, something like that. So if, you, if this is uh, something you're interested in, we probably talked about a, other, a bunch of other great stuff too. And, uh, uh, Drew, man, thank you for being with us today. It was a really uh, fun conversation. My, my pleasure. I really appreciate it. All right, great interview. I just want to say a couple things here at the end for you guys today. Uh, we're, maybe some stuff you can help me out with. If you're at all open to getting on Twitch and watching live streams from TSPC, I would appreciate it. I am not yet figured out how Twitch works, but apparently it's a pretty decent platform to monetize content and it, it's something that people that they use it to watch live streams and podcasts really enjoy because the, the, the interaction can be very powerful. I don't get it yet, but I'm working on it. And I just need a few more subscribers and a few more views there. And it's going to move me up into something called an affiliate. I don't even know what that means yet, but if you are open to getting on Twitch, get on Twitch. And you can find the links on the website to, to follow me there. But just look for Jack Spierko, one word, S-P-I-R-K-O, for those that keep spelling my name wrong. It's pretty simple, six letters. Um, Jack Spierko, one word, and, uh, and, and friend me up and follow me there, and I'll, I'll accept your friend request. And I don't know where that goes. But they have a pretty cool app, I, and I downloaded it for my phone. I was playing around with it yesterday. 
And I think that this is why I'm interested in, in working with Twitch. There are some decent podcast talk shows there. There's not many. And most of it is gamer stuff. And I'm not into gamer stuff, and if that's why you use Twitch, that's fine. I'm not putting you down. I'm just not. But I think when with this, the way Twitch seems to be going right now, it's growing in other content. And that's when you want to get your brand presence in there. And I think I might have made a mistake by calling myself Jack Spirico instead of the Survival Podcast. I got to wait a while before I change my username, but then I'm going to do that. And, and, and you guys will still follow me if I do that. It won't, it won't cut us off or anything. Uh, so that I'll show up in search results that way because I don't know how many people are going to search for me personally. Um, but I, I think this is a platform worth building a TSP presence on. I learned about something yesterday. It's called a mob or something like that, where once you build a following, you can basically take all your people into somebody else's live stream and help them. And Second or Tenth Amendment Center is on there. So maybe if we can build both of us up. So they don't have a huge following either yet. They're pretty new. But when you get on Twitch, if you do, look up Tenth Amendment Center and follow them as well. And if you communicate with them, let them know that I told you about the fact that they're on Twitch. We've had uh, Michael Bolden on TSPC before. I'll probably have him on again, I, I imagine. Uh, but that's just a little thing you might be able to do to help me out. The other thing you might be able to do to help me out, Do your online shopping where? Come on, you know by now, tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com, you'll always be able to find our item of the day and all the items that I've reviewed. And if you start your shopping there, no matter what you buy, you will help out the Survival Podcast. And it doesn't cost you nothing except a couple extra seconds to go there first. You'll also be able to see all the stuff I review, and you know you can trust what I review. Because I own it, I bought it, I spent my money on it, or I wouldn't recommend that you do so. Today's item of the day is blood-veined sorrel, also known as bloody dock. And the original write-up is for plants or seeds. The nursery that sells the live plants is out of them. That's the bad news. The good news is don't buy the plants. The seeds are so easy to start, and they grow so well. And the dadgum thing is basically a cultivated weed And uh, it is a great plant to grow, especially if you have small water gardens or if you have a damp area with partial sun. It is just fantastic for that. Th those of you that want to have like little bitty water gardens, like this is a great plant. Just put it in a pot and set the pot in the water uh, so that the pot's a few inches above the water level. And it'll go bonkers. Wicking beds, bonkers. If you have a good irrigated garden space for it, bonkers. It's a perennial. It comes back. It looks great. Chef, use it. And I was asked today, you don't eat that stuff regularly, do you? Because it's got oleic acid and you'll die. I'm not going to say anything about that except nobody eats it by the bowl. It's something you put a few here, a few there, maybe add to a little bit to a soup, put on a salad, stuff like that. It looks really cool. Chefs use it all the time. And I'll save my comments for scary warnings like that about certain plant types. For Outback with Jack on Friday this week. Tomorrow will be the Expert Council. We've got two great shows coming for you. I have not been streaming my segment for the Expert Council. If I hear from enough of you that want me to do that, uh, I will start doing it again. It's usually a much shorter stream, 10 to 20 minutes. The reason I stopped, though, uh, in fact, I mean, you know what? I'm not going to do it. I'm going to tell you why I quit streaming my segment for Expert Council. It ends up becoming a whole other podcast because... I can't stream and then not take your questions and comments. And so I do my 15 minutes. I'm ready to drop that into the show. And then I spend another 30, 40 minutes chatting back. So I'm probably not going to take my Thursdays off from streaming. We'll stream Monday through Wednesday and we'll stream Friday. Uh, with that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of 
the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Yeah.